Hi, I'm Jeremy Ullman, graduate researcher at Concordia University, and this is Abstract, a podcast where I'll be interviewing graduate students to learn about their research in a way that makes it accessible, bringing into the discussion aspects that are fun but challenging, covering a day in the life, and also just throwing around cool theories and groundbreaking findings that they've come across in their readings. My goal here is to tap into the wealth of information swirling around graduate students' minds, culminating from months to even years of research and reading. We're going to harness that knowledge together, one episode at a time. On today's episode, we talk about artificial intelligence, or AI, a relatively new phenomenon with the primary goal of automating specific tasks. So. The Industrial Revolution, for example, lightened the load of physical labor for humans. And some people believe, in this case, AI will take over the mental tasks that plague us. We outline three types of learning, machine learning, reinforcement learning, and deep learning. And we discuss what is meant here by deep. We also get into tasks of varying difficulty and complexity, algorithms that can identify anything, Pavlov's dogs, neural networks, and Jacob, our guest today, is also the first guest to participate in the Explain Like I'm Five segment. So let's hop to it. My guest today is Jacob Buckman, a PhD student at McGill University studying artificial intelligence. He's interested in the topic of reinforcement learning. That is, how can we design computer algorithms that can teach themselves how to act in a new environment? based on positive and negative feedback. Jacob works on the mathematics that helps answer this question. And he also implements this math using deep neural networks for application in even more complex tasks. In his free time, Jacob enjoys running, reading, and freestyle rapping. His eventual goal is to be able to do all three of those things at the same time. And I can't wait to see what that looks like. So it is my absolute pleasure to welcome Jacob to the podcast. Jacob, how's it going? Ah, oh, it's going great. Thanks so much for having me, Jeremy. I'm excited. Awesome. Yeah, I haven't spoken in a little while. Uh, Jacob is a friend of mine. We met uh, about a year or two ago at a at a local uh, talent show, basically in the community. And uh, well, anyways, the rest is history. But, uh, <laughs> rest assured, his freestyle rapping puts mine to shame. I thought I was on the top of my game, but I'm not, unfortunately. Haven't <laughs> been too badly for yourself out there. Uh, you know. I got things to work on. After this, we're going to probably practice freestyle rapping for a few hours, I think, if the <laughs> schedule is free. So the introduction that you had written that I had slightly revised for this podcast that I just said uh, has a bunch of words in it that I'd like to break down one at a time for the listener. So of course, uh, if this is your first time popping into the podcast, welcome. This is Abstract, and we are going to try and explain everything that Jacob does in his research in as accessible way as possible. So the first word that I came across, first phrase that I came across in this introduction that I think maybe needs a bit more of its own introduction is artificial intelligence. So I'm sure many people have their own interpretation of what artificial intelligence is depending on the application in their specific domain. But if I don't know what artificial intelligence is at all, or if I've heard the term tossed around a little bit, how would you, Jacob Buckman, describe artificial intelligence? Yeah, for sure. So artificial intelligence, as you said, is one of these terms that has really been latched onto by a lot of different people. I think it just sounds really cool on some level, very, very sci-fi. Mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of different people, a lot of different groups sort of want to 
convince everybody that what they're doing is, is real artificial intelligence. So it winds up sort of having a, a, a lot of different connotations depending on who you ask. But the way I would describe it is as research on ways to use computers to model human thought or thought that is on the level of humans, even if it's not actually human-like. So basically, right now, there's a lot of tasks that computers can do really well. For example, adding large numbers, right? Like chess. Playing chess. So that Mm -hmm. playing chess is sort of in the middle there. Um, Well, we can come back to chess. Okay. But something like, uh, the most straightforward example, I think, is like multiplying two 12-digit numbers. You know, a computer can do this instantly and perfectly every single time. Humans practicing this skill, even the best humans, will just be nowhere close to the accuracy or speed of a computer at, at, at this multiply task. But there's these other tasks that humans do effortlessly, naturally. Everyone does it. Babies do it. From the day you're born till the day you die. For example, you know, you can look out into the world and recognize objects. Notice, oh, you know, this is a glass, this is a phone, this is a book. And it turns out that to get a computer to do that seemingly simple task is incredibly difficult. So when we talk about getting computers that can do human-like tasks, what we're really talking about is rounding out what computers can accomplish, taking all these tasks that seem so easy for humans and figuring out how to make computer algorithms that can do them. So that's why it's, it's actually a little bit weird, is that most of the focus on AI is getting computers to do things that humans find easy. Okay, so that basically makes it seem like the ultimate goal is the, is the convergence or the integration of artificially intelligent systems with humans so that each system's strengths can be basically integrated with the others. Although yeah. what you're saying is even further than that, which is let's allow artificial intelligence to do the things that we do and also do the things that we don't do. Yeah, a good example of the, the integration would be, you know, a human with a calculator, right? A human with right. a calculator can, can both recognize the, you know, number of balloons on the table in front of them with their, you know, vision capabilities. I'm quite good also, at that, actually. Yeah, pretty, pretty uh, <laughs> a regular expert in balloon counting over here. Yeah, yeah. And then also, like, multiply that using their calculator by the number of children in attendance to decide how many balloons to fill up. You know, that's, mm-hmm. that's sort of like the synthesis of human and computer, leveraging the strains of both. But wouldn't it be even better if we could take the human out of the loop entirely, offload all of the tasks to the computer? So not only does the computer use computer vision abilities, which is part mm-hmm. of AI, to count the number of balloons and count the number of children, it also uses robotics robotic hands perhaps, which are, which are dexterous enough to, to fill up and tie off the balloons itself mm-hmm. and just complete the whole task end to end with no human intervention, thus allowing our erstwhile balloon man to take a nice vacation on the beach. I'm actually the- really glad that you mentioned the kind of this idea of removing humans from the equation. Last night before bed, I was reading a part of the book Sapiens by Yuval Noah Harari. Some of the listeners might know this book. I would highly recommend it. And in this section, uh, it was talking about how the Industrial Revolution introduced machinery to basically take over the tasks that were predominantly done by human hands or animal legs for hundreds or thousands of years. So, for example, um, I believe the steam engine started in coal mines 
They would use the steam to push pistons and that would help that would help in the mining process. And now we have applied that to many, many different kinds of things like cars, et cetera, on the surface of the planet. So you're basically saying, okay, so it's been the industrial revolution now for a couple hundred years. Now we have the artificially intelligent revolution where instead of uh, you know, taking away some of the things that humans did with their hands, replacing them with machines, now we're trying to take away humans altogether, take away the brain of the human and then basically recreate that inside of a machine. Is that what you're implying? Well, uh, more than implying, I would just outright state that as definitely the sort of the ultra long-term dream of most people. I, I wouldn't even say most, some people who work on artificial intelligence. I think um, the shorter term version of that would be just looking at it as automation of specific tasks. So as you said, you know, the Industrial Revolution automated lots of physical tasks and there are lots of mental tasks that we do every day that are now also able to be automated by computers. For example, calculation, multiplication is, is a good example of this, right? Mm -hmm. When you uh, click and drag on an Excel spreadsheet and it auto-fills following the pattern. Ooh, I right? love a nice click and drag. Ooh, don't get yes, me started. So <laughs> you don't even need to click and drag. Sometimes you can actually just double click on the on the tiny green square in the bottom right of the cell, and it will autofill to match the uh, the formula using adjacent cells. But anyways, we'll have a different Excel discussion on a different podcast uh, <laughs> at a different time. Although I can already tell that my goal to keep this right around an hour might be entirely thwarted unless I actually actively decide to reel us in because all of this <laughs> is super interesting and I can tell that you're quite knowledgeable on the topic. So that's artificial intelligence. Let's kind of maybe close, uh, temporarily close the discussion specifically on that terminology. And I urge our listeners to continue to learn about that themselves. Would you recommend any particular resource for an introduction to artificial intelligence, a book or a particular scientist? I don't know if there's uh, one resource that I have in mind, but I think that a, a, a lot of good online classes are available. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a, a couple classes from Stanford that, that I are available online that I like. Yeah, the, the field is, is uh, there's a, the sort of defining textbook right now that if people want to start uh, using these techniques or working in the field, I would recommend is the uh, deep, deep learning book. Uh, there's just there's, there's one book called the deep learning book and that's sort of the uh, deep learning is one of the most popular frameworks for artificial intelligence right now and I think that that book gives a good overview of a lot of the uh, current most promising uh, and interesting directions and techniques. Awesome. So it's called the deep learning book. Yes. So for those interested in uh, learning more about the current state of the art of the field or maybe doing a little bit of work in this area, I would recommend the deep learning book. Uh, deeplearningbook.org. It's available for free by a good fellow, Benjio and Corville. Um, well, it's really excellent. Free? We love free. Here at Abstract <laughs> Cast, we're all about free. One of the great things about being in the um, AI ML world is... What's all, ML? Oh, sorry. Machine learning. Ah, uh, yes. A specific technique that overlaps a lot with artificial intelligence. We can get into that later. But, Perfect. Um, You've mentioned deep learning and machine learning. And I know that you specifically, as was mentioned in the introduction, are focusing on reinforcement learning. I would love to have a nice, nice chat right now about learning in those three particular ways. And maybe we can connect reinforcement learning and deep learning and machine learning 
either in the hierarchical way that they are organized or if they're laterally organized then how they relate to each other does that make sense yeah it's a, it's a it's a little bit of a mix i think of hierarchically and laterally in this case but um okay. yeah so learning in general we love learning learning is is to me one of the uh key insights that that working with algorithms over uh, and working in the ai space have have given me is that a lot of the times it's harder to solve a specific problem than it is to solve a general problem, which sounds bizarre because it seems like, you know, trying to come up with an algorithm that solves all of these different problems should be way more complicated than just solving one tiny narrow problem. But actually- That seems totally counter to what you said at the beginning where, for example, multiplying two 12 digit numbers, which I would consider to be specific is very easy, but modeling human thought, which is more general is actually really difficult. So what do you mean by general things are easier here? Like what's the distinction there? Yeah, so there's certainly some specific problems that are easy, but there's also some specific problems that are very hard where a more general form is actually easier if you learn it. So essentially it comes down to this, right? When you look at how to multiply two numbers, you know, if I asked you to multiply two numbers using pencil and paper, you could come up with an algorithm for doing this. You know, you multiply one digit, you carry the two, whatever, add mm -hmm. them all up, you know how to multiply. And if I asked you to write a computer program to do that same thing, you could probably figure out how to do it and, and people have, and it's, it's pretty straightforward. But when I ask you to do a task that you have uh, less explicit knowledge of, and it's more implicit knowledge. For example, mm -hmm. how do you go from the things that you see in front of your eyes to the knowledge that there is a book on the table? That's not right. something that you have a good grasp on. And uh, at the beginning of AI as a field, what people would work on a lot of the time is coming up with trying to sort of dissect their own thought processes and come up with ideas for how to actually write an explicit algorithm to detect a book on a table, just like you would for writing an algorithm to learn how to multiply, to writing an algorithm to multiply two numbers. But it turns out an algorithm to detect a book is incredibly difficult to write. You have all these different books, all these different tables, different lighting conditions, just the space of possible edge cases that you need to consider is so vast that it is incredibly difficult to write an algorithm to do this by hand. When you say but, edge cases, do you mean like the edge of a table or are you using some jargon that you should now explain? <laughs> yes, so what I mean by an edge case is sort of um, an unforeseen uh, occurrence. It's the idea that the almost every case that you see, almost every different example of a book on the table that you see will be unique in some way. So it's true that you can get maybe, you know, 50%, like half of all books on tables using just three or four rules, right? But sure. the other 50% of books on tables, every single one, this one, there's a, it's occluded by a cup, right? There's a cup partially blocking it. So you can't really see it. This one, the book is actually the same color as the table, so it blends in. This one, the, the book, book is the, the table. The book, you the open table. the top of the table, and there's a Bible in it. <laughs> yeah, so right, there's all these weird edge cases. And actually, like, trying to, to get all of these sort of more unique situations, which is what we mean by edge cases, is really, really difficult to do. So is that like, would an application of edge cases in like uh, automatic car driving technology be something like a deer running into the road? Because most of the time that doesn't happen, but sometimes it does. So there's not a lot of opportunity to practice that. 
For sure. And even if you think about it from the perspective of an algorithm designer, right? Imagine writing code to drive a car perfectly, but you also have to write code for identifying when there's a deer in a road. And, you know, what if there's the deer is at night versus during the day? If the deer is looking at you versus looking away from you, what if there's two deer in a road? You have to write all these code, all these different situations. So if we want to write an algorithm to identify that there's a deer in the road and stop, or even just identify that this is a book on a table, how do we do it? We can't program all of these edge cases ourselves. Computer programmers just don't have that kind of time. What we do is, instead, we program a generic algorithm that can learn to identify anything. And this seems way harder, right? Because wait, 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 anything? So like, not, not just specifically tables. Like you aren't creating a system that just, you feed it pictures of tables and it analyzes those. You're saying you can create something that can detect everything? Well, actually, the feeding it the tables is the important part here. Okay. You create an algorithm that can identify anything given a lot of pictures of that thing, right? So the algorithm by itself is the only part that the uh, programmers need to write. Collecting pictures of books on tables, that's an easy task comparatively, right? You can just scrape the internet for books on tables. You can put out a bounty. You know, anyone who takes a picture of a book on a table and sends it to me gets 10 cents per picture, right? And just these pictures will start flooding in. It's much easier in general to collect data that covers edge cases, right? Because somebody's gonna take a picture of a book that's occluded behind a cup. Somebody's gonna take a picture of a table that is itself a book that you can open up. You know, somebody's gonna take a picture of a, of a picture book that has an unusual shape. If you're just asking for people to send you pictures, eventually you're gonna get pictures that cover all or, or most of the edge cases. Of course, you won't cover every single one, so there's always still gonna be some amount of error there. But the idea is it's just in general much easier to cover edge cases by getting data on those edge cases than it is by explicitly writing an algorithm that handles those edge cases. So the question is, then, is, is the goal to eventually be able to cover all cases or is there some percentage or some threshold we're trying to meet where we say, okay, 0.5% error is acceptable because as we know, the human eyes are not a 100% infallible machine. They also make errors. So is the goal to match the human capacity to recognize objects or to, 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 to go beyond that? And what does that even look like in terms of the statistics? Yeah, and the thing is, we're not there yet, so nobody really knows. Okay. But in general, the sort of, what people talk about, the, the no, the, there's one thing that we know is possible. We know that it's just, physically possible to do as well as a human on these tasks. Why? Well, we have an existence proof of one uh, system, one agent that is able to do this well, and it's humans, right? So because we know that humans can do this well, we're pretty confident that we can design a computer system that will do this, this well. With wait, enough wait, wait a second. So let me try and break this down. Like, I'm gonna try and destroy your argument. So uh, computers are not humans. One is biological, one is computational, one is like more like electrical, in, inorganic versus organic. So they're fundamentally different, right? In that respect. So you're saying, well, just because uh, the, the biological material can create uh, object recognition, then the computational or hardware should be able to do the same. Well, I can build buildings out of concrete, but can I build a building out of any material, like, can I build a skyscraper out of straw? 
just because I've seen it made out of concrete? Can I build the Burj Khalifa out of uh, styrofoam? Yeah, no, certainly not. And I, I don't want to come across as this is a, you know, a, a known fact that it's definitely possible. Only that it's the most that artificial intelligence researchers are hoping to achieve most of the time. Is, is we can say, look, if it's the case that intelligence is something that arises, is it's more of a sort of an, an emergent property of of systems of of inferences that that operate in specific ways. Then wow. at least hold on, that was a lot. That was that was a lot. An emergent property of systems that evolve. This is not a philosophy podcast, my friend. Let's reel <laughs> it in for a second. I'll dial, I'll dial it back. Basically, yeah. um, wait, I, wait, I wait, saying, wait, I, wait, wait. This is this is the perfect opportunity to have our explain like I'm five segment. We're gonna reel it in. I am a five year old podcaster. Welcome to my podcast. Wang wang wang. I want my mommy, um, <laughs> and I want you to tell me what you just said, and I'm five years old. Well, what I want to say is this. You know how when you go into art class, yeah. you see people making great paintings with, with, with paint brushes, you know? Usually these are like uh, eight-year-olds. So they've got, they've got a, a couple years of painting experience that you don't have yet. Mm -hmm. So... When I go in, uh, when I take you to art class, and I say, look, we know that you can't paint very well right now. But if you look at those eight-year-olds, they can paint much better than you can. So we hope that if we work hard enough on your painting abilities, you'll be able to get at least to that level at some point in your, you know? Right. Now, I, I might know be 30. I admit you might be 30, but at least you'll be able to paint as well as, as those eight-year-olds over there. Okay. Now, it's, it's like sort of a, a known quantity. Now, we also know that it's possible to paint as well as Michelangelo. And I'm not saying that you necessarily will be able to get all the way there. Okay. You might be, maybe, you know, you just don't have it in you, no matter how hard you work, to reach that level. And you know what? That would be disappointing. But as it is, you know, I'm going to hold out hope that you will one day be able to paint as well as Michelangelo. That is, I'm gonna keep working, taking you to art class, encouraging you, putting your paintings on the fridge until you, until, you know, for as, as hard as I can to get you all the way to Michelangelo level painting. You might only reach the level of an eight-year-old and that would be disappointing, but I hope I can get you to Michelangelo. Now, there's also, you know, photographs. Do I ever expect you to be able to paint a photorealistic Thing that is beyond the capacity of any human painter right now to paint? No, not necessarily, right? That's just something we've literally never seen a human able to paint on this level. So I'm not even willing to hypothesize that. I'm not even willing to hope that you might be the first human ever to take it to that level. Mm -hmm. So to take the analogy back to intelligence, this is sort of how I feel about artificial intelligence, right? Right now, we have these systems working at the level of a five-year-old, and not a, not a real five-year-old, sorry, that's just a metaphor, mm -hmm. probably working not even at the level of an infant yet, realistically. But, sure. you know, we can, we can see that if we keep working on it, they'll improve a little bit. And we hope, we really hope, that if we work hard on this for decades, centuries even, we'll eventually bring artificial intelligence, even though it's not necessarily just as you are not necessarily Michelangelo, artificial intelligence on a computational substrate is not necessarily going to achieve the exact same things as a biological intelligence on a chemical substrate. 
there's some, there's obviously, there might be some ir irreconcilable differences there that prevent us from ever achieving human level performance on things. Mm. But, so but, biological know, substrate meaning human and then mechanical substrate being a computer. A computer or maybe some future computer that we eventually figure out how to design. It doesn't necessarily need to be today's computers, but it probably will be for the foreseeable future. Sure. Great. Love it. Very, very nice. Very thorough. Um, we did derail a bit from discussing reinforcement learning. I don't believe that term ever even came up. So let's bring it back to that. That is your research. You are researching reinforcement learning. So why don't we start from, I guess, the, the basics in terms of what reinforcement learning plays in terms of a role in your research or mm -hmm. how, how your research plays a role in the reinforcement learning literature. For sure. So I guess to describe reinforcement learning, it makes sense to talk about something like Pavlovian conditioning in animals. So this is a uh, concept from psychology that basically uh, Pavlov's dogs, very famous experiment that, you know, he would ring a bell and then feed the dogs. And eventually, if he did this long enough, then well, he would be able to just ring the bell by itself and the dogs would start salivating, even though there's no food available because they would learn to predict the one from the other. So this is sort of like this idea of learning from reinforcement, right? The thing of ringing the bell is reinforced by the reward of the food right afterwards. And so the dogs learn to, you know, walk up to him and start salivating whenever they hear the bell. This they, is like an association that's being made between the bell and the food. And so the behavior then is the salivation and anticipation. Exactly. So the okay. behavior is being shaped by learning about the environment in a way that's shaped by positive and negative rewards. And so taking this same metaphor of learning about an unfamiliar environment based on positive to negative rewards into sort of more tractable mathematical terms, you get reinforcement learning. So the way reinforcement learning is set up is we model that there is an agent that can act in an environment. And the an agent that can act in an environment. So like on the computer, we're imagining that there is a dog in a room and there's a bell. Exactly. So, um, right. So there's a dog maybe in a house and we are putting ourselves into the role of the dog's brain. Basically, we're trying to say if we, we could design an algorithm that would tell the dog how to act in response to different things. And also we can say certain things. Maybe the dog has the goal of getting as much food as possible. So it gets a plus one reward whenever there's food, something like this. And now what actions should the dog take? Well, at any given point, the dog can bark, it can walk over here, it can walk over there. So the, this, this agent, which is the dog in this example, has all of these different actions it can take, and it needs to choose the right action at any given moment in time. So how does it decide what action to take? Well, it has various senses, right? It has eyes, it has ears, it has a nose, and it can use these senses to learn something about the environment it's in. And however, you know, let's say the dog just moved to a new house, so it doesn't know how to get food yet. The dog might not actually be good at knowing when to bark and when to act. And so this is the problem of reinforced learning. Imagine you're a dog, put down in a strange environment, and you're getting all these sensory inputs. You're seeing things, you're hearing things, and once in a while, you're getting some food. So you want to figure out what actions did I take in response to what features of the environment that led to me getting food, and how can I do those things again? 
right? And the, the decision, the, the debate about like what aspects are meant to be innate versus what aspects are meant to be learned in intelligence in general is, you know, very, very big debate in AI. Lots of people have different opinions on this. Uh, reinforcement learning is generally studied in the uh, tabula rasa setting, which means blank slate, where we assume that, look, you know, we, we recognize that any real animal or biological agent will have some, they, they call them priors or inductive biases that help it know oh, I, how to- I prefer priors to inductive biases for the purposes of this podcast. So pr okay. prior, prior information built into the brain upon birthing. Yeah. So we, we acknowledge, of course, that most real beings will have these priors. Um, but most, traditionally, most reinforcement learning is studied in this blank slate fashion, where we just pretend for a moment that we don't have any priors and say, okay, what, what can we do now if we don't have any priors? Recently, you know, there's been a lot of interest, actually, in thinking really hard about priors for reinforcement learning and how to build these in and, and what they can do. But I don't work on, on that area as much. I'm more interested in the question of, you know, Assuming we have no or minimal priors, how can we, mm -hmm. how can we go about learning? But that's basically what, what we are like at the beginning of gestation, right? When a sperm enters an egg, we can effectively say that that system of sperm plus egg does not really have any priors. So when we build these artificially intelligent systems, are we essentially just saying we're starting from like basically nine months before the fetus is born, like just time zero? Well, it's not clear because the biological process that gives rise to the you know initial baby brain when it's born is in fact informed by years of evolution right so the as you said crying right i think babies do cry the the moment they are born it is innate it is, they don't need to learn that crying gets them attention they just know that look soon as anytime you feel uncomfortable cry as a reaction that's just the default level zero uh behavior but I don't then, think I've actually shed that behavior yet. That's still my reaction. <laughs> That's true, right? It is just deeply ingrained in all of us. But uh, eventually, it learns. It learns by getting more information about the environment. And I don't want to draw the analogy to human babies too closely because, you know, it's obvious that human development, even animal development, is a lot more complicated than what we're working on in reinforcement learning right now. You know, our, compared to the richness of human experience and development, our models are, are very limited. That being said, it, it is a good metaphor, I think. Um, and okay. it's certainly what the people who study reinforcement learning are we're, we're going for and trying to set up this problem as sort of a very abstracted, very simplified version of I appreciate that. Might learn. Yeah. That, you're, that you're kind of, you know, letting the listeners know that we're just kind of tenuously holding on to this analogy, not, not too married to the idea of AI as babies, because they're not yeah. the same. We don't just have people sending in millions of pictures of books on tables to every child in America. Uh, <laughs> that would be, that'd be quite a childhood, somewhat dissimilar to mine, but who knows? Maybe that's the best way to get kids to learn what a ball is. Maybe. So, okay. So, We've discussed reinforcement learning, which relates back to, I guess, this initial experiment by uh, Ivan Pavlov, who had dogs, and he conditioned these dogs to salivate to a bell before any food was even present. So there was some kind of association happening there between the stimulus of a bell and then the stimulus of the food, which is inherently rewarding. So how does reinforcement learning relate to deep learning? and machine learning. These two latter terms seem 
a little bit less in the psychology domain and a little bit more in the AI domain. Yeah, definitely. So deep learning is a, is a subset of machine learning. So there's definitely a hierarchy there. Okay. Uh, machine, machine learning is the umbrella. Right. And machine learning is the, the general area of study that goes alongside what I was saying earlier, which is that sometimes rather than writing explicit programs to do things, we would rather write programs that can learn things from data and then provide them with data. So machine learning is all about writing algorithms that can learn from data. And um, deep learning is a specific subset of those algorithms that use a technique which has become very popular in the last decade called neural networks, specifically deep neural networks. And this term neural networks is again sort of designed to evoke this analogy to, you know, biological neurons. Brain. Brains, you know, sounds super cool, super futuristic. It's really, in my opinion, a bit of a, a bit of a stretch, probably not the best name for this object, but it is very cool sounding. Is that, um, is that a contentious, like, is this a, a contentious thing in your domain where neural, like some people believe neural networks are like, this is it, this is the, this is the apex of science and others are saying, let's slow down with this terminology here. I think we're pushing it too far. Or no. are you like the black sheep coming, coming here saying, nay, neural <laughs> networks. I think it's fairly well established in the community. You can ask almost anyone that neural networks are a very good algorithm, but are not a good proxy for biological neurons. So they're doing something very good and very important. And in fact, I would say I'm on the, the proponent side. I think mm -hmm. neural networks are really awesome and really important. And we've only just begun to scratch the surface of the important insights we can take away from this, this area of research. But um, just the term neural network itself is definitely a little bit misleading, a little bit overhyped. So it is not like the neurons in my brain. Uh, it is inspired by them, maybe, but not exactly. Yeah, it's, it's, it's loosely based on a true story. <laughs> so, so my question is, we just kind of discussed neural networks, but there's this word deep. This mm -hmm. word deep that modifies or, or it kind of adds a bit of a new flavor, a darker flavor to neural networks. So what is the deep really doing here? What is the deep telling us? The deep is actually one of the biggest recent revolutions is that the, the realization that, so neural networks in general, the way they work is they are, they're sort of modular. They come in like layers or clusters. So you can take the same basic algorithm and add, uh, which is sort of, you know, you, you, the data starts in some form and then you push it through one layer of a neural network and then it emerges in a different form, hopefully a, a better form, right? Like or a black box kind of with some function. You, you know, it's like a meat grinder, but, it's, <laughs> but you put beef in and chicken comes out. Exactly, exactly. Okay. And um, I want to invent that. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna make the like, like the biological version of a deep neural network. I'm gonna turn beef into chicken. Well, if you think about it, chickens are kind of like the biological version of that, except they turn grain into eggs. You know, shove grain <laughs> in inside and eggs come out the other. Right. I, I guess this all comes back to biological or. Sorry. Now, now you can have your bread and your omelet. All you need is like a chicken in between. Right, and you get the, oh my goodness, this is this is overwhelming, but a balanced <laughs> meal at that. Okay, so back to this idea of deep. Then deep is kind of this like, this new this this new level of neural networks. 
And so you're saying that neural networks are built almost in like layers, right? Right. Okay. So you take the same basic idea, which is you start with uh, start with one one thing. You push it through this computational procedure, which is called a, a layer of a neural network, which is actually a very very simple computational procedure. And then it comes out the other side in a different form. What you can do is you can then take that thing that came out and push it through another layer and push it through another layer and push it through another layer. And this is what's called the depth of the neural network is how many layers you push it through before reaching the end. So these layers are actually kind of stacked. You could think of it kind of like, um, if you think of it like a building, then when mm -hmm. the first time that the beef goes into the building, it goes in on the hundredth floor and then you put the chicken into the 99th floor. And when you get to the sub basement, that is the that is about as deep as you can go. Although I don't know how many layers would you have in a, a full gourmet meal waiting for you yeah. on the first floor. And a and a nice building made out of styrofoam. <laughs> the idea behind the depth of the neural network and the importance is this realization that actually taking the exact same training procedure and the exact same sort of like modular uh, layer components and just stacking more of them and bigger of them and just making the whole thing enormous and deep will actually lead to really good performance on almost every task. And now What's this the is difference between these different layers, layers in the neural network? Is it like the same function? We're just running it through over and over and over again? Yes, that, that's what's wild. So it's not actually the exact same function, but what it is is sort of a, a generic uh, template that gets trained later. So it's any, it's basically a linear mapping plus a nonlinearity. So mm, no, no, that's not working for me. I'm sorry. Uh, so I'm five years old. I am, I am five years old again, and we're talking about deep neural networks. I knew this was going to happen. I'm so thrilled, Jacob. I'm so happy to have you on this podcast, and this is, this is part of the challenge. I'm pushing you to your limits. You're a very smart, smart person. You're now going to take these smarts, and you're going to just convey them to the world. I'm five years old. These deep neural networks, please continue. <laughs> I think the exact nuances of the mathematical operations that go on on each layer of the neural network are a bit, are a bit beyond the, the capacity of any five-year-old, unfortunately. Let's not even talk about the mathematical nuance then. Yeah. The general idea is that this is sort of a, a, each layer, it can do a lot of different things. It can do whatever it needs to do. So it's, it's this very sort of flexible computation where we can basically say, look, all right, maybe the first layer needs to do this. And now on this other problem, the first layer needs to do that. So it'll choose which of those things to do based on what data it receives. And then it'll just do whatever the most useful thing is given the data. And that's why neural networks are so cool. It's because this one layer, you just take a bunch of them and, and stack them. And of course there are a lot of important tricks to this. It's not as straightforward as I'm describing, but at a high level, it really is this simple modular operation that you can just keep stacking and it'll keep getting better and it'll keep learning whatever it needs to learn for this particular data set. And that's so less so is more does not apply to deep neural networks. More yes. is more. Uh, Charmin Ultra, get out of here. <laughs> less, less is almost never more with deep neural networks. Uh, okay. the, the more data you have to train it, the deeper, the larger the uh, network itself is, the more time you spend training it, all of these things will just improve the performance. And that's why it's so promising of an approach is because if we get more computers, more, more compute power, 
we can just throw it in and now our network will be better. If we, on, on any problem, on, on, or not any problem, but on a huge variety of problems. So it's very, there's obviously limitations, but it's very, very promising. So we can deep then, like the depth is not just the number of iterations you go through with these stacked neural networks, but it's also time. Time allows for increased depth, it, right? Well, the, and like the, more the, computers. Yeah. The word depth specifically does refer to the, the stacking okay. thing, mm -hmm. but the reason deep neural networks in general are so promising is because they're basically the first time in machine learning that we've found an algorithm that has this property, which is that all you need to do is scale it up, give it lots of data, and give it lots of compute, let it train for a long time and it will get good performance on almost any task. Or, you know, again, there's obviously limitations that I'm not mm -hmm. gonna go into, but it's very exciting, the vast number of tasks that it's seemingly able to perform really, really well on. Could you give um, me one example of that? A, a task that using deep neural networks, we can, we, we can train these neural networks to learn, quote unquote, quickly and or efficiently and with very high accuracy at the end. Yeah, so one example of a task that everyone listening is probably familiar with is translation. So if you go to Google Translate in around, I think, 2014 or 2015, they uh, switched their translation algorithm to use deep neural networks. So the way oh. that it works now is it just takes a bunch of data, paired data, where there's a sentence in, for example, English, and then the same sentence in Spanish. And it's possible to find these in various places on the internet. and um, uh, translation, the Google system and basically every other system now, the way it works is they train a deep neural network where the input is the English sentence and the output is the Spanish sentence. And uh, they learn a neural network mapping from English sentences to Spanish sentences. And then, you know what? You can plug in any English sentence to this trained model and you'll get out the corresponding Spanish sentence. Even sentences that it's never seen before. It, it, it generalizes. Mm -hmm. Right. That's what's really cool about it. It doesn't just fit the data that it's seen, but it generalizes to new data. Now, of course, it's not perfect, but uh, it's, a, it's quite a lot better than... I actually did not know that five or six years ago, the entire translation industry uh, got turned on its head yeah. with deep Pretty neural well. networks. That's great. That's a, that, is, that is a wonderful example. Because I, I do recall, as many might recall, if they, if they especially grew up in Quebec, where you might have been at a French immersion high school of sorts, and some mm. courses were in French, and your French was not great because you were an Anglophone, not talking from personal experience here, <laughs> that we might have used perhaps on the odd occasion Google Translate. And sometimes, if you really look, these translations would be horrendous. Uh, I do truly wish that I could have saved some of those raw translations to compare them to now, because I'm sure they would be different. Yeah, and it exists in, you know, the academic translation community. You can see examples of these systems, that, uh, what, the, what the old systems used to be and what the current systems are. It's, it's quite a big difference, quite a big difference. I'm very excited to re-listen to this episode to see how digestible it is. I think we've done a decent job so far. This might, folks, if you're listening, this might be the kind of episode you listen to twice. Okay, so you've, you've officially been warned. There is one last part of the introduction that I uh, boldened the words just to draw my attention to it. And at the end, just to reread this last sentence here, 
Jacob works on the mathematics. We haven't really spoken that much about the math because I think that's really probably beyond what we'd like to really get into here. Although, just super quickly, is calculus one of the mathematics that you use in deep neural networks? Is it probability? What, what general domain that our listeners might be knowledgeable about most applies to the mathematical side of what you do? Yeah, so within deep learning, I think the uh, probably the most important uh, fields of mathematics are uh, the, the calculus comes in because the way that neural networks are trained uses uses calculus. It's this idea called the back propagation, which is essentially it's like the chain rule for derivatives, where you say, how do I change my function in order to minimize this error? Like I I, I tried to make this prediction and I was wrong. And now, using calculus, you can say, how much do I change my prediction for next time? Calculus is the mathematics of change. Yes. Yeah. Then there's also um, a lot, uh, I think something that's very important is probability and uh, statistics in general, because a lot of the sort of the, the objectives when we, when we train a neural network, we need to train it in, in order to optimize some objective that will hopefully then translate into good performance on the task we care about. And a lot of the times, the most convenient way to define these objectives, and indeed to think about the whole training procedure is probabilistically. So things like, you know, for example, you'll look at just a few of your training points at a time, because looking at all the training points at once is too computationally expensive. So when you are just looking at a few of your points, that's when you, you know, picking a few of something out of a larger batch is called sampling, right? You're, mm -hmm. you're taking a sample of the, the larger batch. And so in order to express these ideas, we use probability and statistics to, to make sure that the training procedure is, for example, uh, doing what we want and will um, eventually right. reach it. It's like a quality control measure. You know, you're, you're packaging oats and you want to make sure that your bag of oats has approximately the amount of weight of oats that you're marking on the bag within some margin of error. So you test one out of every hundred bag of oats and then you can use fancy mathematics to say, ah, yes, we are quite confident that the vast majority of our bags, even though we've only looked at 1% of them, do contain the right number of oats. Yeah, so basically leveraging those sorts of ideas in order to figure out how to use the training data we have to uh, optimize some uh, objective that we want to uh, minimize in order to make our task be completed effectively. Right, i.e. using lots of photos of books on tables to allow a deep neural network to better recognize books on tables. For example, yeah. Perfect, I'm gonna reread that sentence now. Uh, Jacob works on the mathematics, thank you that helps answer this question, the question about uh, reinforcement learning, right? How do computer algorithms teach themselves? He also implements this math using deep neural networks, which we just discussed, thank you, for application in even more complex tasks. So we have spoken about tasks like recognizing a book on a table. We also mentioned driving a car, or a, a car driving itself. Presumably these are completely different levels of processing or of computational power in terms of the complexity, would you be able to maybe give us an example of maybe three to five kinds of tasks ranging from quite simple to very complex tasks? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the way I see it, there's, there's two axes that we're, that we're looking at here. One axis is, is the 
task is the, the space of the task. Are the objects that we're working with on this task, are they high dimensional and complex or low dimensional and simple? Uh, the other sort of important question to, to answer, the other important axis that separates problems is, are we learning via supervision or are we learning via reinforcement? Learning via supervision means, are we given the correct answer? Uh, whereas learning via reinforcement, as we discussed earlier, is that there's no correct answer. We're just trying to figure out how to act in order to get the best possible reward. So, so like, it, in, like, um, in like a really simple mathematical way then, it's like giving a, a machine a bunch of like easy addition problems. And then if it gets it right, we say, yeah, the way you did that was correct versus supervision, which is, all right, here's three plus four. The answer is seven. How are you going to arrive there? Exactly. Okay, exactly. perfect. And Great. Clearly, the, the supervision is, is much simpler, right? Because mm -hmm. when you give it the right answer, it has a much easier time doing, doing the learning. There's a lot more signal there. Whereas with reinforcement, it has to, do, has to try a lot of things before eventually discovering the right way to do you know, addition. Or cool. So the problem of recognizing the book on the table, that's an example of a high-dimensional complex problem, but a supervised learning problem, one where the answer is given. Right. This is a book. This is not a book. So the problem space is supervised, high dimensional. Right. Then I see. You have there's like a two by two grid I'm imagining here. Right. Because yeah. each of these measurements is a binary. Right. High versus low complexity and then supervised versus reinforcement. Cool. OK. Yeah. The complexity one, of course, in reality is more of a spectrum than a. But you know. sure. Yes. That's a great so, point. Then there's the. Uh, reinforcement learning simple tasks. And these are the ones that I study the most. Reinforcement learning simple tasks is hard to even give an example of because they are so simple that they don't correspond to anything in reality, right? You might have like, a, they're, 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 they call them grid world tasks. Where you imagine you have an agent that's just represented by, you know, the, the, the agent's whole world is just like a four by four grid. And in some of the squares of this grid, there's a reward. And in some of the squares of this grid, there is death. And the agent's actions are go up, down, left, or right. And there's only 16 possible states the agent could be in, corresponding to the 16 different squares of the grid, right? So this is very simple. You don't need neural networks to tackle this task. You don't even need a, Jacob Buckman. <laughs> well, the, what are you the, doing? This, this is actually the core question of reinforcement learning is, even if the environment is, is, they call them tabular environments, where it's so simple that all the different states can be written down in a table, right? Sure. Even in an environment that, like that, that's so simple, if we know nothing about the environment going in, we still don't know how to act, right? And what we want to do is we want to learn how to act as fast as possible in a tabular environment that we're completely unfamiliar with. So this is actually a very difficult and interesting question, even though there's no real world problem that it perfectly analogizes to. However, once we take these two elements, right, we have these high dimensional problems that are supervised, and then we have these reinforcement learning problems that are low dimensional, and you take aspects of each and combine them. Now you end up with high dimensional reinforcement learning problems. And driving a self-driving car might be a good example of this, right? The input space, you've got all these sensors, you've got cameras, your action space, you can you know, turn the wheel all sorts of directions, there's all these buttons on the dash, you can turn your lights on or off, you can gas or brake. There's all these different things that you have to do. 
and there's no supervision, right? Nobody mm. knows the exact right way to drive a car. You can maybe have some demonstrations. They can be somewhat informative, but at the end of the day, it really is a reinforcement learning problem. People try, most like current self-driving car approaches, generally try to solve it with supervised learning because reinforcement learning isn't very good yet. It's pretty unsolved at the moment. So, so wait a second, just, just so that I can vocalize this maybe for myself and for the listeners, because I don't know if this is, if, if you've, if the listeners have heard of it in this way, what, what I just took away from this comparison we're making is that reinforcement learning can be thought of as unsupervised learning. So, Unfortunately, the word unsupervised learning is already taken for some. Right, no, no, else. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Oh, oh, it's, oh, it is. Oh. It's a completely other thing. Yeah. Oh, so I'm sorry. Forget I said anything. Yeah. No, no, it's okay. It's, I mean, it probably should be mentioned. Generally, when people talk about different sort of problem settings in artificial intelligence, unsupervised learning is the third one that they mention. Supervised, unsupervised, and reinforcement learning oh, are sort of okay. three that people talk about. But I don't, my work doesn't touch on reinforcement learning at all. Oh, sorry, uh, on unsupervised learning at all, so I, I didn't bring it up. Unsupervised learning generally refers to the case where there's no supervision and there's not even reinforcement signal. There's no positive or negative rewards. It's literally just, let's do something to this data. So, uh, for example, you might want to take uh, a bunch of profiles and cluster them. Right? Profiles like Facebook profiles? Yeah, I was thinking like Facebook profiles. You want, sure. you want to cluster these people so they end up in, in clusters of, of similar interests, right? Yep. Now, like, there's not really a, a supervisory signal, right? There, you're not going to have a human expert come in and cluster them first and then have the algorithm try to copy that human's clustering. No, you're going to try to just evoke some natural coherence between the clusters and try to just basically try to get beautiful interpretable clusters out and that would be a, sort of an example of unsupervised learning okay the, not what you do though you are not doing that correct correct you are working with a four by four grid of dying and eating and i love that i just summarized your entire phd because uh in, in that one very sad sentence because i'm sure i'm missing so much so much nuance but you know that's uh it's wonderful to know that everything we've just discussed is knowledge you've gained on this road in academia that has basically culminated in exactly what I just said, which is you focusing on these very, very simple systems. But then once we can really master these simple systems, we can move on to more complex ones. Like you were saying, driving was like reinforcement learning at a complex level. For sure. And if we can't even have a little agent in a four by four grid world avoid crashing into the obstacles how could we possibly have a self-driving car in this big rich complex world avoid crashing into obstacles you know so except that to, i thought that cars already are kind of decent at doing that at, so there's at, right there's ways but um again as always in in machine learning the edge cases are, are the hard ones mm -hmm. so most of the time you know in good conditions highway driving the self-driving stuff is safe enough that a human with their hands on the wheel can basically uh, save off any, any accidents. But to do right. it like a real self-driving car, the kind where you just sit down in your car's seat on your driveway, tell it where it wants to go and take a nap, and it gets you there in any weather, at any time of day, in any traffic conditions, a car that really performs the full job of driving in the same way that humans do, that would, I think, require a lot more uh, complex understanding and, mm -hmm. and 
reinforcement learning. Now. That's fair. I do have a question that I have to ask for my father, which is, in your opinion, how many years do you think it's going to take? How far are we temporally from having the cars that do just what you described? Take a nap. Uh, it'll take you from A to B in any condition possible. So I am... Order of magnitude. One year, 10 years, 100 years, that kind of thing. I, I am hugely pessimistic here. I think if you ask most people in the community, they'll tell you something on the order of like, you know, one to five years, maybe even 10 years, but I'm going to say like 80 to 100 years. Cool. Easily. Maybe, All even, right. maybe even more. I'm also a pessimist in, in terms of uh, getting overly excited about the technological advancements that we're currently working with. Um, yeah. I think it's very, very easy to get caught up and say, oh yeah, this is right around the corner. And who knows, maybe we might not even be able to experience a world that is driven automatically. Yeah. We'll have to wait and see. There is one final question that I'll ask that is pulling us way, way out of this deep discussion that we've been having about neural networks and the like, which is a question I've asked all my guests, and this is what we will end with. Question is, because I like to get to know the, the people behind the research. So one to three words to describe yourself as a researcher or academic, and one to three words to describe yourself as non-researcher or academic. And are they the same or are they different? Mm. I got two words. Cool. And the, the two words are probably focused and also chilling, you know? Wait, wait, these are the two words for uh, your academic self? For both. So it's the same words for both? Same words for both. So focused and chilling. Yeah. So chilling, the, pres the, the uh, present progressive of chill. Yes. So a verb and then focused, an adjective. Yes. Perfect. Okay, so tell me more. <laughs> if you can, Sorry. focused and chilling. Those two things do seem, uh, I get, you know what? Focused and chilling, you know what that sounds like to me? That sounds like what Mihai Csikszentmihalyi talks about in terms of flow. Mm. When you're focused yeah. and chilling, I mean, although chilling is actually more leisure, but focused and chilling to me sounds like the way someone would describe an activity they are highly skilled at, um, but that they, but that's perfectly matched to their skill level. I think the I think the flow state is 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 pretty similar to what I'm describing. I think you know I I like what I do. I think it's it's very fun and interesting and I'm passionate about it and I spend a lot of time on it, but the time that I spend on it doesn't feel like a drag really. It feels like something that is just an enjoyable way to you know, pass the afternoon. So yeah, I'm focused on, on what I'm doing, but I'm, I'm also chilling, you know? Chilling. I'm just kind, of, just kind of hanging out, reinforcement learning, doing some research. Yeah, um, freestyle rapping a little bit in between, hopefully. On occasion. Yeah, that's just how I try to live my life in general. Okay, a good mix of focus and chilling. I mean, that basically eliminates the need for me to even ask about work-life balance because you just described work-life balance in two words, focused and chilling. <laughs> so you know what, for the listeners, focused and chilling. Maybe try to channel focused and chilling. Try to channel Jacob Buckman's focused and chilling vibe because it seems to be working for him. Maybe that's the answer, focused and chilling. Before I say focused and chilling again, <laughs> We're going to wrap this up. Jacob, it was an absolute pleasure having you on. I enjoyed challenging you to really break things down in a super simple way. This is definitely a very, very dense topic. And so I applaud you for your ability to really 
really rise to the occasion of uh, talking down to me like a five-year-old. <laughs> well, thanks so much for giving me the opportunity, man. Anytime. Awesome. All right. I love cool. it. Yeah. That's wonderful. Well, I hope to maybe have you on uh, if you do a postdoc or towards the end of your degree, if you have some changes in your, um, in your path. It's been really nice chatting. So if there's any more information I can glean from your brain, I would love to do that at some point. So you're sure I'm down. Perfect. That'll be it for today. Thank you for popping in. This is abstract the podcast with Jeremy Allman. Everybody have a great afternoon, evening or morning. Take it easy. Thanks for listening. If you liked what you heard, you can check us out at abstract cast on Instagram. If you have any feedback, please feel free to leave a comment on the post for the current or any previous episode that you might have listened to. Or if you're a graduate student and you would like to be on the podcast yourself, you can drop us a line at abstractcast at gmail.com. This podcast will be released weekly on Sundays and is also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and pretty much everywhere else you're going to find podcasts. So feel free to check us out around the internet. Until then, take it easy.